are in Revelation chapter 15 and 16 this week, and it's the bowls of wrath, the seven bowls of wrath. And if you knew that, you might not have even signed up to come, right? But that's what we're talking about, the seven bowls of wrath. So I thought uh, the better way to start is with a story, a love story. It's a love story of my wife and me, wife Vicki, who was here at the nine o'clock, and it's not a romantic love story. I'm going to leave that for a different venue, but uh, this is just love between Vicki and I, and I, I think it's important for us to think about love as Christians when we say we have to love God with the love others, that when we love somebody, the way we love somebody is we get to know them well. So for me to better love Vicki, I have to get to know her really well. You, you might actually say that I need to study her. You know, I, I, I actually have to en- engage in Vickyology. I have to really get to know Vicky. And so I know that when we watch a movie, better not have a sad ending. Vicky's not going to like that. We only watch movies with a happy ending. And in fact, the middle has to be pretty happy as well. And, and I know about Vicky after 37 years of marriage that she doesn't like to be cold. And her comfort range is about plus or minus one degree. And in Vicky's opinion, seat heaters are a gift from the Most High God. She loves to be warm. And Vicky likes mashed potatoes. That's her comfort food. And when I make mashed potatoes for her, I have to be careful to put just the right amount of milk, butter, salt, and pepper. And I'm, I, I've learned that I always need to give her a taste before I serve it to her. Because often I have to add a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And Vicky likes greens because she's from the South. Green beans and collard greens. Collard greens, stink up, they stink up the house, people. But uh, she loves them. But the most important thing you should know about Vicky is that she has this incredible tender heart. Vicky absolutely hates, can't stand to see any living creature, either animal or human, hurt. So I love Vicky, and my life is full of Vickyology. You might call me a Vickylogian. And all that means is I study Vicky. And the word theologian, all it means is we study God. Now, in our culture, the term theologian is reserved, kind of, sort of, for people who have their Ph.D. or they're a, 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 they're, a, they're a professor, a theologian, that's what they are. But the reality is if you're a Jesus follower, you love God, you love the creator of the universe, you, you need to know God better. That means we need to study God more. That means we need to all be theologians. So today, I'm going to make all of us honorary theologians. Let's call ourselves theologians light in deference to the PhDs that teach it in the university. So if you know God, if you love God, if you're a follower of Jesus, we need to study God. uh, Not just to get some big head knowledge, it's so we have a better relationship with God. So we're not going to study God in the academic PhD sense. We're going to study God in, in a way to deepen our relationship with God, just like I deepen my relationship with Vicky, who I love. Now, one of the places, if you're a note taker, write this down, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The PhD theologians will say that this is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. It doesn't show up in English so much, but in the original languages, that's the verse that other authors keep going back to. And why? Because we discover first and foremost that God is a God of compassion. So we need to know that about God. 
we study it and know it, we'll have a better relationship with God if we know he's compassionate. And the verses go on to say that he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's full of love and full of faithfulness. But we'll also discover, if we read that passage, that God does not leave the guilty unpunished. God does not leave the guilty unpunished. And why is that? Because God is a righteous judge. He condemns sin and evil. Sin and evil have no place in the kingdom of God. And our problem in the 21st century is the word judgment has such a negative connotation. But we've been saying for a couple weeks now that judgment, if you're judged by the righteous judge, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. So we need to have that relationship shift with the king of the universe, that his judgment is good and righteous. God is a righteous judge. Sin and evil have no place in the kingdom of God. Now, when I say that, many of you may be wondering, like I wonder from time to time, why, this is a good question, right? You know, we always get these questions from, from the toddlers. I remember my, my little kids when they grew up, Daddy, why do, do worms not talk? <laughs> I don't know. Do worms cough? I got that one too. But we ask, why did God allow sin and evil to exist in the first place? I don't know. A lot of theologians say that is the number one toughest question in all of theology. Why did God allow sin and evil to exist in the ver first place? Why did he create a world that allows for sin and evil? And if we get practical, we say, why did God allow a world that allows for Satan, for Adolf Hitler, for Joseph Stalin, for Pol Pot, for Saddam Hussein, for Idi Amin, and for the first century readers of the Revelation, Nero Caesar, who was incredibly evil and set Christians basically to death by putting him in an arena with a lion. You're not going to survive that. So this question of evil is the toughest question we could ever ask. And we have to drink a tall glass of humility and say we'll never be able to fully answer that. People have been trying to do this for 2,000 years since Jesus, and so we can't fully answer that question because God is infinite and we are finite. His ways are not our ways, and our brain cannot fully figure out why God allowed evil, but we can get a partial, satisfying answer to the question, why does God allow evil? Now, chapter 15 and 16, which we're going to get to in just a second, they're all about the day, capital D, day, the day, the day of the Lord, the day of wrath. This is when Jesus returns as the righteous judge. In the Old Testament, there's this wonderful line in the prophet, uh, from the prophet Malachi who says this about the day of the Lord. He says, the day of the Lord is great and dreadful. Great and dreadful. Now, I don't know about you, but I never describe anything like that. When do you ever describe something as great and dreadful? I was thinking about, do I ever, ever hear a thing about like that? Well, the golfers in the world describe golf like that. It's a great game, but it's dreadful. My, one of my friends that golf says, golf's a wonderfully horrible game. And, and that's what we have with the day. It's great and it's dreadful. Well, let's dive into our text, chapter 15, verse 1. It says this, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels 
with the seven last plagues, last because with them, and watch this, God's wrath is completed. If you have a highlighter or underliner, underline that, especially the completed part. You see, these seven last plagues, which will, down in verse 7, will be called the seven bowls of wrath. When they're poured out, it's the end of God's wrath. It's the last seven bowls of wrath. And when this is done, the wrath of God comes to completion. Fortunately, his love continues forever. We talked about that for a few weeks ago. So we've had the seven seals, remember that? And then we had the seven trumpets, and now we have these seven plagues, or seven bowls of wrath. And we have to remember that they're both grateful, they're both, they're both dreadful, and they're great. And what's the difference? Well, if you're with God, they're great. If you reject God and you worship the beast, you'll see that they are very dreadful. Now, we don't have time to go through verse by verse all the way through chapter 15 and 16. We'll be here till next Sunday. Uh, so we're not going to do that. Uh, listen to the podcast. We advertise it every week because every week more of you are jumping on and listening and learning, I hope. The, the podcast is arevelationconversation.com, and you can get a verse-by-verse description of the symbology. But last week, if you remember, I said that new songs in the Bible are often about salvation and or victory. Salvation or a victory when it's a new song. And very, very important here in chapter 15, starting halfway through verse 3, we get another new song. It's another new song. There's not a slide for it, so you have to look on your paper Bible, your app, or listen to me. I'm just going to read it. This is the new song, in, in verse, starting in verse 3. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And what I want to highlight and tell you to really notice out of this is verse 3 says that God's ways are just and true. And brothers and sisters, this is hugely important, critically important. Because even though we can't fully understand the infinite holy God, we can know lots about him through theology light, through growing in a relationship with him, filled by the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the, one of the things we can know that we know that we know about God. His ways are just and true. It's all over the Bible, and it's repeated here in this new song. Why he allows bad things to happen to good people? We don't fully know that, but we know this. God's ways are are, are just and true. You see, th th this song here is actually called a new song of Moses. And if you remember, we've been talking about this from time to time the last couple of weeks, that there's an Exodus motif in the book of Revelation. And if you remember, Exodus is about redemption. It's about God rescuing the Israelites from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was representative of all evil, of Satan himself. The seven bowls of God's wrath are a new exodus. This is God's rescue plan. It's how he rescues the world, not just the Israelites, but this is how God rescues the world from all evil. He puts an end to it. So that's what happens. Now, the rest of chapter 15, there's just a few more verses here. What we get is a description of the seven angels, and they're dressed as priests. 
That's important. And these priest angels are carrying the seven bowls of wrath that will be poured out in the next chapter, just, just in a second. But notice where they come from. The angels come out of the temple. And remember, the temple is God's presence. That's where the most holy one resides. And these angels come from God. They come out of God's presence. And then notice that it says no one could enter the temple in God's presence until the bowls of wrath are poured out. So that's the mission that's going to happen in chapter 16. How you guys doing? You with me? You're with me, right? Good. That's 15. Quick, quick, quick summary. But let's go to chapter 16 and start in verse 1. Chapter 16, verses 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath. And this is it. We've arrived. After 15 chapters and several weeks of leading up to it, we finally get to these seven bowls of God's wrath poured out on sin and evil. And as we read the description of these bowls, they're going to sound familiar to you. You're going you're to say, oh, I've heard this before. And they're familiar because they're very, very similar to the Exodus plagues. Because this, this Exodus motif continues into chapter 16. So let's, let's look at the seven bowls all together. We'll just summarize them on the slide that's going to come up in just a second. The, f- the seven bowls. Well, the first bowl is festering sores. And I, and I wanted you to notice a couple things about this first bowl because it sets the stage of the trajectory of all these bowls of wrath. And the question is this, who is the bowl of wrath poured out on? Is it poured out on believers or is it poured out on people who have rejected Jesus? Well, it's pretty clear. It says the bowls poured out, quote, on people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The bowls of wrath are poured out on people who have rejected Jesus and have chosen to worship the beast. This, my friends, is a judgment on Babylon. Remember we said Babylon is representative. It's the archetype of all evil human kingdoms. And we said all human kingdoms become Babylon at some point in time. And we said we cannot mix up the kingdom of God with the kingdom of America. The kingdom of God is righteous and pure and true and just. But here we say we see the bowl of wrath being poured out on those who worship the devil and the beast. If you want more to convince you of this, uh, you don't have to turn there. This is a real short, short passage. But Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, there's a section on the day of the Lord talking about the day, the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, First Thessalonians chapter 5. And in verse 9, Paul says this, For God did not appoint us, us being us believers, God did not appoint believers to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So is this going to be a great day or a dreadful day? It's pretty dreadful if you worship the beast. It's pretty great if you worship Jesus. Well, then we get to the second bowl. The second bowl turns the sea to blood. And then the third bowl turns the inland waters to blood. The inland waters are rivers and lakes. And then the fourth bowl, the sun scorches people. And then the fifth bowl is a direct pouring out of wrath onto the kingdom of beasts, uh, of the beast. And it, there's darkness and there's pain and suffering. And then the sixth bowl 
is a little different. We'll get to that in a bit. But the sixth bowl is the Euphrates River dries up. And, in, and compared to the other bowls, that sounds like, that's not so bad. But wait, we'll get to that. Seventh bowl is the final cosmic judgment. And again, we don't have time to go verse by verse through here. So I'm just going to give you a couple highlights, a couple high-level things that you can't miss if you want to understand this passage and grow in your relationship with God Almighty. And the first one that I want to point out is these three verses, 5, 6, and 7, and they come after the third bowl. So we're cruising along, reading the first bowl, second bowl, third bowl, and then there's this editorial comment almost. Some scholars call it a judgment doxology. And you got to admit, that just kind of sounds cool, judgment doxology, right? But for those who don't know what a doxology is, all a doxology is is a small little hymn of praise. So you're telling me that this is a judgment hymn of praise? It's a hymn of praise about judgment? Yes, that's what it is, because judgment is a good thing when the judge is righteous. So let's read it, verse 5. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. Pause. It doesn't say and who will come because he's come by this point in time. Verse 6, For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Verse 7, And I heard the altar respond, and I love that imagery. This is a physical altar that starts speaking. The altar speaks. That's symbolic. Yes, Lord, O God, God Almighty, says the altar, true and just are your judgments. And notice we talked about just and true are your judgments back in 15. Here the, the order is reversed so that you notice it. It's to bring attention to it. But it's the exact same concept. So what's happening here is after three bowls of wrath that are poured out, this angel steps in and gives us some clues says why this is happening and what's the simple answer to why this is happening it says right in the text because God is holy God is holy and you and I can't fully understand that no matter how long we try no how how long you fast pray study everything there's no way we who live in an unholy world com completely, totally, fully grasp the holiness of God. But let's try. Let's try because it's an amazing thing to come up as close as we can get to. God is holy. And in verse 6, notice God's reasoning to the bulls. It's because they shed the blood of the prophets and God's people. So this is God righteously avenging the evils of Satan and the beast and the kingdom of the beast. And if we look at verse 7, just like we read in the Song of Moses back in chapter 15, we hear that the God's judgments, again, are trust and true. And, uh, did I say trust and true? Anyway, they, true and just. Sorry, I may have reversed the order. But because... God is holy. God is also true and just. His truth and his justice flow out of his holiness. It's because he's holy, perfectly holy, that we can't fully comprehend. He's perfectly, totally true and just that we can't fully comprehend. Now, A.W. Tozer helps us with this. 
He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and there's a quote coming up on the screen, and, and this is how A.W. Tozer describes this. He said, holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He's absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that's incapable of being other than it is. That's holiness. And many, many scholars say as a result of this holiness, God's justice is true and just, but you can go a step further, peel the onion back and say God's holiness and justice is morally true. It's not just true, it's also morally true, and it's legally just. And one of the reasons the world we live in is so messed up is we can't agree on what's morally true. There's 8 billion people on the planet, and there's a lot of difference of opinion on what's morally right. Just take some of the topics of today that are hot topics in terms of morality, abortion, same-sex marriage, wage inequality, gender inequality, human rights, and we can go on and on and on, and there's massive differences of opinions because we can't agree on what's morally true. So we go to God to try to discern that. See, know this, without the truth from God, we can get some pretty awful justice. Our legal system, it can get pretty awful. My brother and his wife, my brother Mike and his wife Shay were both involved in the legal system, and they, they gave me some illustrations of how sometimes an attempt to, 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 to legislate morality goes, goes awry. And they have this term, they call it lawful but awful. And that's a real thing in our society. You know, I don't know if you know this, but if you're in the grocery parking lot and you're just doing your thing and you get in somebody's way and they get mad at you and they stick up a finger telling you you're number one, flipping you off, did you know that's legal? As long as they don't threaten you. Freedom of speech, it's lawful but awful. I've received so many phone calls with so many car warranties and so many cruises I've won. It's just incredible. It's lawful for them to annoy me all day long, but it's awful. Well, how about Portland's naked bike ride? Did you know that's actually legal? <laughs> it's legal to do that in Portland. I think we can agree that that's lawful but awful. What does A.W. Tozer say about this? What does he say about living in this world that really struggles with what's the moral truth and how do we legislate and how do, how do we legalize it? This is a quote from A.W. Tozer. He says this, we have learned to live with unholiness. And we can just stop there, right? That's, that's a problem. We've learned to live with unholiness. That's one of the things that Satan does to us. And we've come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing we're not disappointed that we do not find the truth in our teachers or our faithfulness in our politicians or complete honesty in our merchants or full trustworthiness in our friends. We make such laws that are necessary to protect us from our fellow men and let it go with that. That's the world we live in. Now, you might be thinking, that, that sounds kind of old. It is. A.W. Tozer wrote this in 1961 almost 60 years ago and all we have to do to that quote to make it completely 21st century is exchange the word merchants for retailers and exchange our fellow men with our fellow men and women or fellow mankind how much has changed i mean tozer didn't have an iphone but he knew about people he knew about satan he knew about god's holiness and this tells us that houston we have a problem being willing to accept unholiness. Well, let's move on. The next bowl, the fourth bowl, 
and the fifth bowl, we're going to find, unfortunately, this common theme in Revelation, which is that people don't repent. Chapter 16, verse 9, after the fourth bowl, it says people curse God and refuse to repent. And after the fifth bowl, 16, verse 11, it says people curse the God of heaven and refuse to repent. And, and just like we saw in the seals and we saw in the trumpets, judgment alone does not lead to repentance. But I hope you remember, do you remember what does lead to repentance? Chapter 11, the witness of the church, the church spreading the gospel around the world. That leads people to repentance. So that's why we have this mission. And, and God uses us, his imperfect, unholy followers, weak people, to show other people the way of redemption. And this is the amazing grace of God. It's absolutely off the charts. When we repent as an individual, God is faithful and he's just. And because of the blood of the lamb, the work of the cross... He can and does forgive us, and he wipes away all of our unrighteousness, and then we can be with him in eternity. In chapter 16, it's the people who refuse to repent and curse God are the ones that are being judged. If you're a follower of Jesus, and you've repented and followed Jesus, you're not there. Well, now the sixth bowl, the sixth bowl, the first five were pretty intense, but now the heat's getting turned up. It's like a cosmic throwdown, so to speak. When you first read it, it doesn't sound so bad because it's just a river, the Euphrates River drying up. But what's going on is we read the text, the unholy trinity symbolized by three impure frogs. That's the image that we're given. And these three frogs are the dragon and the two beasts, the unholy trinity. They're gathering the kings of the earth, the kings of the earth that are not following the way of Jesus, and he gathers them together for this giant battle of Armageddon. And then what happens next, if you haven't listened to me the whole day, listen to this, because Jesus is going to talk to us directly. Look between the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl. Chapter 16, verse 15, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, those letters are red. This is Jesus himself speaking. And what does he say to us in between the sixth and seventh bowl? So the last, last, last thing uh, you want to hear before the seventh bowl. Jesus says, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. You see, Jesus comes like a thief. Grant Osborne, one of the best commentators in the book of Revelation, explains this imagery to us, and he says it this way. Christ is returning at an unexpected time and finding his people unprepared for his arrival. An unexpected time and an unprepared people. And in contrast to that, Jesus is saying, don't do that. Stay awake. Remain clothed. And we've already seen those metaphors previously from Jesus back in the letters to the churches. The letter to Sardis, if you don't remember, he tells the letter, uh, in the letter to the church of Sardis, he says, stay awake. You, you, you need to wake up. You need to be prepared. You need to be ready. And then to the church at Laodicea, he says, remain clothed. And that remained clothed is a very, very popular metaphor even in, in Paul's letters. Colossians 3.12, Paul says this, clothe yourselves, talking to believers, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
Doesn't that sound a little bit like Exodus 34, character of God and the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians? And then in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, Paul says it so directly, so clearly. He says, close yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, this clothing metaphor is talking about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ, but to make it practical for us, I say righteousness in Jesus Christ, and you might say, I don't know what that really looks like. Another way to think about this is we're to clothe ourselves with the character of Jesus Christ. And remember last week, we, we, I told you to memorize Galatians 2.20. I hope some of you are doing that between now and Easter, and it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's clothing ourselves with Jesus Christ. Well, now we've finally arrived at the seventh bowl, the seventh bowl of wrath. Let's read that. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a little bit long, but just a couple verses, verses 17 and 18. The seventh angel pulled out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. Earthquakes are a symbol of judgment in the book of Revelation and the rest of the Bible as well, actually. But here, it's the greatest earthquake ever because it's the day of the Lord. But I want you to notice something that you could easily miss. This voice comes from where? Directly from the throne. Super significant. Chapter 4 and 5 was a throne room scene, but this is the first time in the book of Revelation, that a voice comes directly from the throne. This is either God or Jesus speaking. And what does he say? It is done. Grant Osborne also talks about this moment, and he says, the temple, heaven, and throne, for the first time in all of the book of of Revelation, are juxtaposed. The temple, heaven, and throne are co-located. They're located together because this is the significant supreme moment of eschatological history. This is the consummation of God's good plan of salvation. And he says this is, it is done. That's what God or Jesus says. And the rescue plan that Jesus set in motion at the cross, by the way, he set that in, in motion at the cross. What did he say at the end, right before he died on the cross? Gospel of John. He says, it is finished. After the seventh bowl, things change. Because if you've been in church for a while, you heard this concept of the now and not yet. Jesus dies on the cross. We begin the now of the kingdom of God, but it's not yet fully reigning, the now and not yet. Well, here, right here in the book of Revelation, the not yet becomes the now. The kingdom of God fully reigns, and there's no more evil. So now we have a partial satisfying answer to that question. Why does God allow evil? And the answer is this. One day he won't. Now that may not satisfy you fully. It probably doesn't. But it's true. It's righteous. It's just. Why does God allow evil? Well, I don't fully know, but I know this. One day he won't. John Stott, 
in his book, The Cross of Christ, says it this way. Christ's first coming is the victory won. The victory won. And his second coming is the victory conceded. The victory conceded. And that, at that point, God fully eradicates evil in all its forms. Now, I want to just talk personally with you. And, and hopefully I don't offend anybody or make anybody upset. But I, I want to tell you that as I've been reading this book and speaking some on, on the book and the podcast and the book, I've met a lot of people that say, you know, this book is hard. And I say, yes, <laughs> it is. And some people try to incorrectly simplify it and say a statement like this. Well, I don't understand the whole book, but all I know is in the end, Jesus wins. And if you said that, uh, uh, that's fine. I've said that. But let's think. Let's be theologians for a second. Is that accurate? I don't think it is. I think it's a little misleading when we say, in the end, Jesus won. And why is that? Because Jesus has already won. That's what next week's about. Easter, the resurrection, Jesus conquered evil. He's won. It's not that he wins in the end. He's won at the cross and the resurrection. Jesus is victorious right now. We don't have to wait to the end and say, oh, then finally Jesus wins Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed, past tense, the authorities, triumphing over them by the cross, not by the second coming, by the cross. Jesus reigns victorious right now, and we could live in that. It's so exciting. So what's left then when Jesus comes back as the righteous judge is this. He's returning to pass judgment on a defeated, conquered Satan. Isn't it interesting that here we are in chapter 15 and 16, probably two of the darkest, most scariest chapters in the entire book of the Bible, not just the book of Revelation, but the Bible, and we get this hope and practical ways for us to live. In the middle of John's vision, we get to learn about God, the righteous judge. And by the way, the worship band can start making their way up because I'm just about done but God is the righteous judge and and one day he will end all sin all evil God is true God is judge a just he's the judge he is completely totally 100% incomprehensibly holy and, and I said at the beginning we need to be like theologians light not in that academic PhD sense of a theologian, but we study God to know God, to know him better, to have a better relationship with him, then we could love him better, then we could love others better. We deepen our relationship with God by knowing him better, just like I deepen my relationship with Vicki when I get to know better. And as a follower of Jesus today, we need to be practical, super practical. We need to stay awake. We need to stay aware. We have to be aware that the devil wants to lie, kill, and destroy us. He wants to deceive us. We can't let that happen. Satan wants to lull us to sleep. He wants us to just take a nap. That's not the way we're supposed to live. And as a follower of Jesus, we need to clothe ourselves with his righteousness, which is his character of compassion and patience and humility. That's the way we're to live this week. And we're going to go celebrate Jesus' victory next week on Easter Sunday. So to end today, simple. There's a day coming, there's a day coming when Jesus is going to return. And the question is this: 
It's going to be a great and dreadful day of the Lord. What's it going to be for you? Great or dreadful? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful message out of your book where you take these seven bowls of wrath and show us that you are the righteous judge. You are the holy one. We thank you for this. We thank you for the practical implication of this, that we are to live awakened and clothed. Amen.